0: being here on our July 4th week. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, open up with us to Revelation chapter 3. Just as a reminder of where we've been, where we're going, uh, we covered the first chapter in a couple weeks, and then we've worked through Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and now we're in Philadelphia, which is the sixth of the seven churches. And uh, Laodicea, which is the t- to- tonight we have the really good church with like a tremendously positive uh, word of encouragement from the Lord, and then next week we get the most negative of all the church criticism. So it goes from the probably the very best to the very worst in the last two, and then again, Lord willing, our last two weeks <clears throat> after Laodicea will be uh, covering Revelation chapter four and then chapter five. And so hopefully by the last Thursday, or I guess it'll be the last, uh, the very end of July, we'll, we'll, we'll finish uh, Revelation chapter 5 for the summer series. And is this the first time, this is the first time I have ever carefully worked or tried to carefully work through these or teach through these. Is this the first for yep. both of y'all? Yeah. Yes. Just any word just from overview of the whole thing so far? What, what have been some things you've, you've taken away from studying it and preparing? I think this, it gets me,
1: it gets me every week. I know your works. And then and sometimes it's just terrifying to think that you know that there is every single thing every thought every action every word the Lord knows all those but more often it is just a a thrilling thing to know that God is keeping perfect track he knows and uh, you know in a church like this is so encouraging that they're not at all a uh, a place that, that, by the world standard, that people would be um, impressed with. But God knows their works. And so I really think sometimes if you're feeling in, insignificant or if you're feeling like, man, I don't think I'm getting anywhere here, you know, just a faithful plodding, like it sounds like this uh, church in, in Philadelphia did, um, the Lord knows that and keeping perfect track of that.
2: I'd say for me, one of the things is just how like practically relevant the experience that these believers are going through in their specific context, how practically relevant that is to us. Mm. Like, you know, being in, especially like in the US for the longest time, like persecution was just not something that we worried about, something we really dreaded, not really something we faced. And as we see, you know, not just Post, a post-Christian society that we live in but an increasingly anti-Christian society. Um, like there's a lot of connecting points that yep. that you know 25 30 years ago would not we would it would have been like oh yeah that's for other people but like this is speaking to us in a lot of ways and I'm I'm enjoying that because it's like we can identify with what they're going through. We can identify with the challenges they face, with the pressure they face to compromise um, you know, the gospel and, and blend with other things. Like, so it's just, it's been really good for me in that. How
0: about you, Mark? Yeah, I, I think, that, and maybe you guys are seeing this as we read through it. I think that the way, I'll pick on American Christians just because that's where we're at. I think American Christianity, we tend to assess churches differently than Jesus does in these chapters. Yeah. So, I mean, and this is no knock on anybody who's ever asked me this question. I'm not trying to make this personal to anybody. I, but very frequently, I'll run into someone and they'll say, Hey, how are things going at North Avenue? You know, it's a friend from somewhere else. And, and very, very typically, and they, they mean nothing but, but good from this, but the first question they ask is, Are you growing? And, and I know what they mean. They mean numerically, like, are you, how are you doing numerically? Like, how, how many people are coming and how, how big is it? And that's what I get asked almost like that's the bottom line, like that's the sign of health in a church is the size or the rapidity of like how fast your growth is, is going. And, and again, I tell them, we're about the same size we were last time I, I was here. We're not, we're not any bigger than we were a year ago or five years ago, really, in any dramatic way. But, but, I, but I said, people are, I think, truly growing in their walk with the Lord. And, and we've seen some people come to know the Lord in dramatic and amazing ways. And so, I think that Jesus never once. Now, He does mention size, but it's usually because they're small and He's encouraging them, mm-hmm. or they, they're big and think they're so strong and He's actually criticizing them. It's usually the reverse of the American standards, right? Of what, but it's interesting to me in these chapters, Jesus never once says, wow, so many people have recently joined this church, that's awesome. Oh, man, you guys are so big and so powerfully like influential in your culture and community. you guys are just doing it. Like this is amazing. Y'all are, y'all are really like it's like well, that's the way I think we've been trained to talk. and a lot of church books are about church growth and how to manufacture s- size in your church. So if you do it this way and you sing this music and you have this kind of sp- preaching style, you're more likely to grow numerically. And it's just these chapters have been a breath of fresh air to say, no, no, uh, that's not the main point. Of course, healthy growth is great. But the point is healthy. That, that's the point, and Jesus is emphasizing those things. So I think that runs through all these chapters. Did did I was it the younger? Someone
1: was talking about are the two churches that don't have any right? They're the ones that look good on the outside, but they but the Lord doesn't commend them at all. And the two that are looking kinda. <laughs> Like they're not going anywhere, or like this one.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Th- th- I mean, we're going to get to this later, but with, with Laodicea, you say I am rich, I have prospered, but Jesus says you are naked, etc. So the, the church that looks like it's booming, Jesus says not so much, and the church that looks like it's very weak, like the Philadelphia church, they look very insignificant. Jesus says you're very significant to me. What's going on here is really good, and I so that that's been really mm-hmm. encouraging. A, a, a large church can be a healthy church. A small church can be a very unhealthy church there's no direct connection between size and health but i think we've made the two synonymous we said size equals health and i think that's something that we want to we want to not believe jerry can you pr- wait did you pray already i'm getting lost no i can't remember can you pray for us it's been like three
1: minutes ago don't ask me <laughs> those kind of question wow all right let me let me pray for it so we'll go Gracious Father, what a uh, joy, and, and as we've just thought about this, uh, the way the world uh, measures things and the way you measured things are completely different. Lord, that is very, very humbling, and um, I would imagine almost all of us would come here today um, feeling somewhat maybe insignificant or small, certainly weak um, in, in many, many areas. And Lord, we thank you that your grace is sufficient and your power is made perfect in weakness and not in strength. And how clearly that's been seen through the uh, first six churches and through Philadelphia tonight. And so, Lord, we commit this night to you. We ask that you would convince us uh, to be faithful, constantly consistent in the way we go about our life and that faithfulness would um, would win the day in how we operate, Lord, that as a church, we would look more to uh, you for our identity and even individually uh, than the world. And uh, we commit this time to you now, and we ask that we would be faithful in the way we um, uh, talk about these uh, incredible this incredible passage
2: in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
0: Greg, can you read for us? Uh, verses seven through 13 of Revelation
2: 3. All right, beginning in verse seven. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, So that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from, from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So
0: I thought we could start, before we even get into the introduction about Jesus, if we could just jump in with with, with where we were, which is their weakness. Let's look back at verse 8. I want to start with a little picture of Philadelphia, and then we can move back to who Jesus is, who's speaking to them. Verse 8, "'I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept My word and have not denied My name.'" I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Can we just spend a few minutes talking about that idea? So, Jerry, maybe I'll throw to you on this to get a little bit of a thought here, but you mentioned encouraging people who feel weak, who feel insignificant, who feel small. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Just give us some thoughts about weakness, insignificance, those kinds of feelings that we might struggle with. Yeah, don't you think Alan McKinnon would take us right to, uh,
1: to 2 Corinthians 12? And uh, I think it'd be worth turning, turning there. This is certainly a verse that we have talked about. Often, uh, Pastor Lee was talking about how um, he came to love the idea of God being sovereign when we're talking about God's sovereignty over trials. And remember, Paul in verse 9, 12, 9 says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient. After he pre- pleads three times with the Lord to take that uh, the thorn, Uh, let me start in seven so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of revelations a thorn was given to me in the flesh a messenger of satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited three times i pleaded with the lord about this that it should leave me but he said to me and don't you love this god did something better than take away the thorn in the side what's better this is better but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Don't you think I? Philadelphia probably felt like that? They mm. probably felt weak, There, it sounds like. and uh, And yet... That's when we're closest to the Lord. So often, so I just think it's flooded with application, isn't it, for us that we say oftentimes. None of us really like feeling weak. I don't. I know I don't, and I don't think anybody really does. But that's when God's grace is going to be sufficient, and we will really shine more brightly for the sake of the gospel.
2: We, I think, too, like, and we've kind of hinted at this. Like, we we have to kind of re redefine what we think by strength and weakness, Mm -hmm. Um, because we live in a world in which strength is often thought of, you know, solely in physical terms, like I'm bigger, I'm stronger, Um, you know, I can do more because, you know, might makes right, Um, only the strong survive. And I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's wisdom in saying, you know, physical strength and that kind of stuff, but it's like in God's way of thinking about things, in God's economy of virtues, if you will. Um, it's not just the raw display of physical ability, it's actually meekness, which is power under control. Um, it's not saying we, we strive to be as weak as we can physically, but it's saying whatever strength God has given us, we, we use in a way that honors and pleases Him, um, whether or not the world, the world approves of that. Um, And so we we don't need to think of meekness as weakness. I mean that that's you've probably heard that before. It's very cliche, but you know, using your strength to serve others is actually the most God honoring thing you can do. To build others up. Not, you know, puff yourself up, not build yourself up, but to serve and build others up. I think that's the truest Use of strength that honors the Lord. And when we do that, if, if you've tried to serve others in, in any capacity for any length of time, I mean, there, there is a big, very big joyful element to it. But sometimes people are people and they can be hard, and you realize, Lord, I can't do this without your help. And so, well, I can't, remember, I'm not going to remember the, the reference, but it talks about serving the strength that God supplies. And so we, we use what God gives us for the good and the benefit of others and that way God gets the glory and we're not taking it to, our, to ourselves. And so weakness, like spiritual weakness, is a sign of that, I would say, is actually when you're trying to use your gifts to benefit yourself mm. and build yourself up at the expense of other people. Um, that's actually not strength, that's weakness. Um, and we always have to evaluate our hearts and our, our motivations in that. Um, you know, why am, I doing what am I, am, why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it to make me look good? Or is it to make Jesus look good? Is it to build me up or is it to build others up? Um, and so, you know, that might not be absolutely related to, um, to what, they're going, what they're doing here in Philadelphia, but I think it is at least a little bit. You know, in, in terms of like the world looking at them, you know, eh, they're not much to look at, but Jesus has nothing, no, no rebuke for them. <laughs> like they're, they're, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing in a way that pleases him. Mm-hmm. And so that's from a worldly perspective, they're weak. But from a spiritual perspective, it seems like they get that Jesus is their strength, and that's the way it should be. And
1: closer to John the Baptist, let me decrease, let him increase. Mm-hmm. That's what do you see? These yeah. CDs, instead of the two churches that the Lord has nothing good to say. It seems like it's let me increase, let him decrease. So we, we can be backwards on that so often.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that for for probably every one of us, at least true for me, it's probably true for most of us, we, 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 can, we can see uh, areas of real weakness in our life, I, I, I mean, in terms of limited, limitation of abilities in certain areas, right? There's, there's all kinds of, of limitations on what you're good at what you're even able to do well, and it can be a source of tremendous frustration in life because you're like, man, I really wish I had more of this natural ability or that natural ability. Uh, I mean, just like for me, if I had a much stronger memory, it would save me so much time with preparation and stuff. It would just, if your stuff would just stick, you know, if you just, it, 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 it's like the Velcro is wearing off. You, know, you you put it there, it just falls off. And you're like, Come on, wait, wait. I learned this six months ago, I have to relearn it now because it's just, so I, I struggle sometimes, I wish my memory was really strong and I could hold on to all this stuff. So whatever it may be, you've, you've got these limitations and they drive you, they make you feel your limits, your weaknesses. Instead of being tempted to doubt God's sovereignty and how He made you, which is what we're tempted to do, which is to say, God, you made a mistake, Well, we got a little rain coming. Instead of that, I think that we need to learn to uh, what Paul does here, which is to turn to the Lord and say, God, you made me this way exactly as you intended. There's no mistake. There's no, there's no problem here. And in my limitations, I'm going to have an ability to show your strength and your power in a way that I wouldn't if I was more competent naturally in these things. So allow your natural inabilities to be places where you rely on God especially, like all the more, and allow God's strength to be poured through you and for God to show off His strength. And I think that natural weaknesses are probably the best places sometimes Mm -hmm. for for God to get the glory in our lives. So don't despise the way God made you. Don't, Don't hate the way God made you. Instead, rejoice in and trust the way God made you and say, God, I can't do this well, I'm gonna need you. I'm gonna need you for this to be effective. I'm gonna need you for this to work. So if you're, if you're incredibly wealthy, you can think you, I could just make it work. If you're incredibly socially adept, you can, make, you can get people to do what you want. You can just, you know, no, that's not the way to think. We think, God, I need you to make this work. And when it, when it does work, when God uses it, it's so evident both to everyone else and to yourself. That was God, that was not me. That's what the, you know, the giver gets the glory at that point. And it's not, it's not us. So I think that's a great lesson for all of us to learn. Jerry.
1: No, that's that's good. And, and I think I'm, I'm always amazed at his last few words there. I am content with weakness. It sounds like he delights in that. Insult, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What a great thing to remember. We just need to review that in our minds. Because it's not natural for us to think like that, I don't, I don't think.
0: Well, I, mean, just, I I know we all know the story of Gideon. Uh, and I'm going to get all... I don't know any of the numbers offhand. But you know, he had tens of thousands of troops, you know, and he's going to battle. And the Lord says... This is way too easy. Yeah. We're going to win this one so easy, Gideon. Uh, this is not going to work. We need to cut your troops down, 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 right? And then it's, whether they lap or drink out of the brook and all that, and eventually he cuts it down to what, what's the number? 300. 300, 300. Yeah. And, and so he's got 300, and he's going up against this huge group, and they surround the camp, and they break their pots, and they hold up their torches, and they shout, and you know, everyone in the camp panics, and they start destroying each other, right? And the Lord gets the victory, and the odds are so insanely stacked against God's people that God says, now's a perfect time. For my strength to be made perfect in your weakness. And, and so that's a great narrative for us to go back to, to remember mm-hmm. in those moments, God is especially gonna get the glory. Because
1: of those great powerful weapons, torches and jars. <laughs> you can get a lot with that going, you know. That, but you're right, you're so right. And so we just have to turn our, um, um, not be so hamstrung by our weaknesses, but rejoice in them, delight in them, even enjoy them, thank the Lord for them, and
0: then watch him use you. Hey, just one more thing, Jerry, from you, and then I want, to get, I want to get Greg to get us to talk about the keys here in just a second. I want to second. hear from Greg. But, but just one more thing here. You've talked, obviously, about uh, being paralyzed at 17, and we, we've talked about your testimony. Just, I want to give you a word on this, because you've been forced into a place of unusual physical weakness, mm-hmm. uh, that you didn't choose. God chose that for you in His sovereignty, and you had to learn to adjust to that. Can you say a word about God working through that weakness? Yeah, and that certainly
1: at the beginning it just looked like such a rough deal but um when i read this that's certainly what it becomes when through your weaknesses that's when you become strong and that so that last verse there in uh second corinthians 12 it's like that and way 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 more good comes out of the 40 years or almost 40 now of um of weakness than would have come from the, whatever strength I had um, otherwise. Otherwise, God would not have brought that about. He wouldn't have ordained it unless it was the right thing and the best thing and the way God would be most glorified. And so, yeah, I, I don't think I would have guessed that it would have worked out at the beginning. It seemed like a, not a great thing, but a rougher <laughs> thing. But now it just seems like I would not trade that for anything, and, and, you know, and the daily weaknesses that go with that are, you know, have turned out to be a good thing, not a bad thing. Now, I don't really remember that on a day to day. I need whoever comes up in the morning, Ben tomorrow to remind me of you know, that like quit being so cranky and read your Bible is what he needs to tell me. But that's I'm sure those will be the exact words. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. So but that's um, uh, God. Certainly his grace is sufficient. That, I mean, that is we know that. We know that and He proves that daily through our weaknesses.
0: So in light of that, with, with the weaknesses, I think something about Jesus here shows us why we need His power and strength and His authority. Mm-hmm. Greg, can you reread for us seven and eight and then unpack a little bit of the description of Christ here? I will do my best.
2: Uh, again, verse seven, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens I know your works behold I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name uh there is actually a lot going on um in this and we were we were talking about it and it's like you you start digging and there's just more and there's more and there's more yeah. Um, So, let's think, what what does Jesus say about himself there in verse 7? The words of the Holy One. Um, Just focus on that phrase first, throughout the book of Revelation, you know, and especially in in, um, Isaiah in the Old Testament, you know, the Holy One is always a reference to Yahweh, to the one true God. Um, And so, for Jesus to call himself that is yet another place where he is claiming to be equal with, to be the one true God. Um, and you know we say that a lot. We get familiar with that, but I, I think we need to to ask the Lord to help us marvel at just how often Scripture testifies to the deity, the divinity of Christ, that He is God. He is the Son of God. Um, because you'll you'll you've probably some of you probably experienced this. You talk with with people out in the world. Oh, the Bible. Jesus never really said He was the Son of God. That's that's something a lot of skeptics want to use. Um, you know, Bart Ehrman, folks like him who try to, you know, convince people not to believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Oh, you know, he doesn't really claim that, this, that, and the other. Um, but the more you start reading, the more you see, yes, he does. And the Bible does repeatedly. Like we, we, could, we could do weeks of just looking at the text where Jesus, Jesus himself refers to himself as God and where the rest of the Bible does. So to claim to say that He is the Holy One, uh, we need to go back in our minds, because remember, Revelation is steeped in the Old Testament and we need to go back to the Old Testament and say, man, that's a phrase that's always used of God. Well, Jesus is claiming that to Himself here. Um, Yet again, another way He's saying He is God. And then He says, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This was fascinating to me. Hold your place in Revelation and turn to Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22. And so this is the bigger context, an oracle concerning Jerusalem, the city of God. And that's actually going to, you see connections, this is going to play into what more of what we read um, in this passage towards the end of it. But it's talking. It's an oracle um, concerning Jerusalem, um, and we're not. We're going to start reading in just a second of verse twenty. But he's he's talking. God, you know, says to this steward, this this person named Shebna, who's over the household, over his people, um, basically saying, Look, you, you're not lo- you're not dealing with the people uh, in the right way. God's going to verse seventeen hurl you away violently. Oh, you strong man, um, you know, he'll seize firm hold on you. And then he's going to be thrust from his office. Like this position of authority, this position of overseeing, watching over the people of God uh, is going to be taken away from him. And then you get verse 20. It says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder, listen to this, the key of the house of David, He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. He will become a throne of honor to his father's house. They will hang on him, the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to the flagons. And that day declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way. It will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. You might say, wow, that's um, very clearly... Uh, verse, uh, verse 22, you see where Jesus is getting his words. I mean, he's drawing directly from this text in Isaiah. Um, and, and the significance of this is, is, is this, I think. And you guys help me out after I, I hopefully don't muddy this up too bad. Um, Jesus says, I have the key of David. What, what is that talking about? That's the authority, basically, to admit into the kingdom of God. I mean, David is the king, and if you want to be a part of the people of God, enter into the kingdom of God. You've got to go. You've got to have go in through David, if you will. Um, it's the authority to admit people or or reject people. Um, that's why in Isaiah it says, "I'm going to place on his shoulder the key of the house of David." It's it's a burden. If he opens it to you, you can come in. If he shuts it to you, you can't come in. And so Jesus is is taking from that language. But there's one other thing that's interesting. Verse 25 this guy Eliakim his ability to do this isn't going to last like the he's he's he god says he's going to be like a peg in a secure place but then in verse 25 it says the peg that was fastened is going to give way and so jesus is drawing from this and that's why i think it's interesting he says the words of the holy one the true one who has the key of david who opens and so forth is look i'm the true the true key i'm i'm the one who who lets you in or shuts you out. And I'm the true one who does that. Meaning I'm not gonna fail, and there, there's not gonna come a time when like Eliakim, this burden falls off of me. I will forever shoulder this burden of either opening the kingdom to you or shutting the kingdom to you. Um, and so when he opens again, this this is and this is the hope of the gospel message. Um, if Jesus has opened the door, we need to go through that door. Like if, if he has opened the door of salvation, we go through that door through faith. If, if there's, if, and if he, and he shuts it to, to every other way outside of that. Like that's why we say, you know, talk about the exclusivity of Jesus, and, and you know, there's only one way to God, that this is all tying into that. Um, there's there's only one way, every other way is shut. There's one way that's open, and that's through Christ. Um, and, and and so that's why we, we have to be zealous for the exclusivity of Jesus, saying he's the only way because David is God's appointed king, and if, and if, and if you only get into the kingdom through, through, through means of David, and Jesus is the one who has that key, then we got to keep Jesus central. We got to... Just jump, jumping in right there,
0: yeah. this is where Jesus will say to false teachers like the Pharisees, Matt, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew twenty three thirteen, he says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter it yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in.'" So they're, they're promising a faulty door into the kingdom, a false door, a, a not, not Christ-centered door. This other way into Christ, excuse me, this other way into the kingdom is, is over here. Obey these, these works, follow our way, and you'll make it into the kingdom. You don't need Jesus. And Jesus is actually what looks like a door. They're promising you access to the kingdom. It's actually locked shut. There is no access point where the Pharisees are. They themselves will not even get into the kingdom as long as they're living like they are. Because only Jesus is the door. He's the one access point to, between heaven and earth. And he's the one that, 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 that offers that. And if you're in Revelation, look at chapter 1. Just flip back a chapter. Uh, we, we read this again on the second week. But when, when John sees Jesus, he falls on his face. Look at verse 17. Revelation 1:17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one I died and behold I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So Jesus is saying, "Hey, how are you going to possibly defeat death and get into the kingdom?" Right? How, how do you get through the grave and how do you get access out of the grave into life, into the kingdom? You have to have the keys. You have to have authority right and so you know you think about uh you know government buildings or whatever it might be and you and people have different levels of access right and someone has certain keys or certain cards that get them into certain places and then only the person of the highest of the highest authority can get into certain rooms right jesus says okay the ultimate room you want to get out of is the room of death in hades the the, the the grave and the ultimate door you want to get into the ultimate access point it's not the fbi the cia the white house it's none of that stuff where you want to go is god's kingdom And I've got the access card. I've I've got the key right into that door. So I can take you from the ultimate horrible place of death. I can take you straight out of that through resurrection. And I can take you right into my father's presence because I went to death for for sinners. I came out of the grave. For sinners, and now I've got the keys to the grave and to the kingdom. So, if you want to get out of death and into life, there's only one person with that access key. There's only one person on the planet. It's not Muhammad. It's not. It's not Buddha. It's not. It's not you know the modern secular worldview. It's none of the elites out there who are preaching this and that on online. No, it's it's Jesus. He's the only one who's done it, and because he's done it, he, he's got the access keys of David that allow access into the kingdom. Uh, so. Th- it's, this is worthy of celebration and of support mm-hmm. to say that Christ has that power. Therefore, if we're weak, He's got the, he's got the power. He's got the keys. We can rely on Him for, for His strength. Uh, Greg or Jerry? Good.
2: I want to move on to, what, for, well, I guess verse 8. He says, he, he says, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, depending on the context, this can refer specifically to salvation. Other places in the New Testament You know, this open door refers to a work of ministry. And this is one of those places where it's kind of hard to tell and it could kind of be a both and since he's just talked about the keys of David and all that that entails, like the, the entrance into salvation in the kingdom. But also he's talking about, I know your works, meaning I know what you've been doing. Um, and when, it, when you hear God say you've got an open door, like Paul was told was a Corinth, in Corinth you know, there, or mm-hmm. somewhere, there's a wide open door of ministry for me here, even though there's many adversaries, um, we, we think keep doing what we've been doing and try to do it even better. Um, and I think that's what he's encouraging them to do. No one can shut it, like look, you've been faithful to me, you've kept my word, you've not denied my name. Okay, like that, that's the thing, he's like keep doing that. I've got a wide open door and you might say, well, that doesn't sound like they're doing a whole lot. They're not turning the city upside down for Jesus, you know, the way we think of that in terms of revivals, but they're being faithful testimonies and that is exactly what Jesus wants them. Like keep being that faithful testimony, keep my word, obey me, share me and don't deny my name. Um, And again, we have to think about going back to what you said earlier, what do we, how do we measure effectiveness? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it numerically? Is it through vast change and stuff like that, which sometimes happens? Or do we measure it by faithfulness to what Jesus has called us to do? And in this instance, they're they're small. They're not a a, a big group of people. And yet in Jesus's eyes, they're being commended. He's not saying, why don't you have more? Christians, why, don't, why, why isn't your church bigger? He's not, he's not saying that. He's like, look, you, you, you've kept my word. You haven't denied my name. And sometimes that is the faithfulness Jesus calls us to. We, we, this goes back to the American Christianity. I don't want to stay on this too long, but it's like we, we tend to think of gospel success in terms of great sweeping revivals, great you know, moves in which thousands of people come to salvation, which again, we pray for that. We labor for that. But so often it's the case, gospel faithfulness in God's eyes is not that. Mm-hmm. It's faithfully attending your local church, investing in the lives of the people of your local church. If you're, if you're married, loving your spouse, loving your children, being faithful in your job, doing the best job you can. That's what Christ calls us to. That's what He calls you to, that's what He calls me to. And we, we pray, we, we labor for revival, but we, you know, it's one of those things, in Jesus' eyes, they are being effective. From the war, the typical church metrics, they're not effective at all. You say, "Man, man, they they need a revitalization. We need to, you know, we need to either close the doors or bring in new blood and you know get this program going." Because, and in Jesus' eyes, there's nothing they need to change. They're doing it right, and keep doing it. Keep do, keep being faithful, and trust the results of that to the Lord. Yeah. <clears throat> I I do think that you're onto something there
0: because I I do think that there can be a tendency to think uh, in sort of radicalized terminology for the Christian life and not think of the ordinary faithfulness that is what Mm -hmm. the Christian life really is made up of. Uh, Kevin DeYoung's sermon on this text, he said, a lot of young people uh, want to change the world, but they've never changed a diaper. Uh, and he said, he said, you know, there, there, if you, part of changing the world is changing a thousand diapers, right? But part of changing the world is, is if, if the Lord gives you marriage and children, raising up your children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord, uh, leading them towards Christ. Of course, we don't control that, but, but we, we do all that we can and we pray for God's strength. And you want to make lifelong disciples out of your family, out of your children, out of people who you love. That's going to involve very mundane stuff, mm-hmm. uh, stuff that's not going to make the front page of the newspaper. Now, Jesus sees those works they're not going to be on the cover of the newspaper but Jesus will take note of those things and and what changes the world frankly is a long obedience in the same direction it's mm-hmm. it's a faithfulness over time it it is being uh, so so i think sometimes we think of fits and starts and ups and downs what, what God is looking for is just slow growth over time, just, just, just growth in areas over time where we grow a little bit more mature, a little bit stronger in prayer, a little bit more strong in our, our knowledge of God's Word, a little bit more faithful in sharing God's Word, in loving others, and seeing less complaining, uh, less anxiety, more trusting God, more turning to God, a little bit more of those things. and Just over time, as the decades go on, that is a good life. That, that is a life that is honoring to the Lord. And uh, I think we need to adjust, again, how we evaluate and value things. Jerry, thoughts about the reevaluation of things? Uh, He's not after glamorous. He's just after
1: faithfulness. That's what he's after. Just be faithful. Oh, it's almost football season. We need to run the fullback up the middle. How come nobody has a fullback anymore? We've lost our, uh, our illustration there. Three yards in a cloud of dust, and that is every day for, uh, for most of us, right? And we're not called to be glamorous. There's not going to be many of us that are on the front page of anything. But we don't want to be. We just want. Patient endurance. I wonder how many times he mentions patient endurance. Again, we're going to get to it in verse 10. I love that phrase here in these churches. And it seems like we've run into it earlier in the church's patient endurance, endure, persevere through the hard times. They're going to be there, and they're going to be good for us. And then, and I think there's so much encouragement in that. This passage thrills me. That he is so pleased with the Philadelphia church, even though they're not
0: too snazzy in the eyes of the world. And I know we've said this since our church began, so you've heard me say this probably half a dozen times if you've been around, but I'll say it again. It's not my quote. Many people have said this, Uh, and I I, I very much have felt this too. There can be a tendency to overestimate what, what you can do with your life in a single year, and you can tend to underestimate what you can do in five years, 10 years, 30 or 40 or 50 years. So you see what I'm saying here? Very often when, when we're young, or we have some big dream and plan, and we're going to change the world for Jesus. It's going to happen in six months. And if we get caught up too much in that thinking, we're going to get very discouraged very quickly because life doesn't usually happen like the day of Pentecost, right, where 3,000 people get saved in an hour. That, that doesn't normally happen. So we, we have these big ambitions, and we go out there, we're going to change the world for Jesus. And then six months later, nothing really has changed, and you just want to throw in the towel. Like, what's the point? Well, that's because we've got unrealistic expectations of what we're trying to do. How about your personal faithfulness to the Lord? Is that grown over the last six months? And we we overestimate what we can do in a short time. We underestimate what we can do in a lifetime. And I think the Lord really works through, He works through lifetimes. He works through long periods of time, and He does great things in the quiet moments. That The things, again, are not going to necessarily be written down in the history books, but that's where God is really at work. Here would be a tiny example. So let's say last night, one of you was about to go to bed and and you you hadn't been walking with the Lord like you know you should be this past week or whatever. And everything inside of you wants to veg out on a device and not go be with the Lord. Last night, maybe this is you. And you're going, I'm gonna make a decision right now with God's help to put the phone down, the screen down. I'm gonna go get alone and I'm gonna spend time with the Lord. And the Lord met with you in in a powerful way. That right there is a massive victory. Okay, that's not going to be known by anybody, and you shouldn't go around advertising that. You don't go post that on social media as soon as you have a great quiet time. This was amazing. Don't do that. Don't be the person who walks around with the you know the Pharisees with their phylacteries and all the stuff, showing off all their no no no. But th- those are the moments where the where, where there's a spiritual and real battle going on, and the decisions we make in those ba- in those moments, whether to actually turn to the Lord desperate or just veg out on the screen, that's where your next day is going to be impacted by that decision. And how you treat people in tone and word choice is gonna be different based on that decision. And so, I mean, there is a cosmic battle going on uh, right there when you're going, I'm too tired and I don't want to do it and I'd rather watch this new show. There is a battle going on and like there is actual eternal impact and effects of things that can happen or not happen depending on what happens in that moment. So please don't despise the day of small things Mm -hmm. like Zechariah says. Uh, See the battle that's at stake there and and let's strive for, for faithfulness no matter what is going on around us.
1: Any other Did thoughts your on the dad that? used to tell you that quote, don't despise the dead small things. Well he, he used to tell dad? me uh,
0: that it was Lamentations three about oh, wow. uh, what was that let, let the young man not despise the burden of it in his youth, I think was, there you go. Was one, I when it. hard yeah. times would come, yeah. which is a good a good <laughs> verse great. from
2: Lamentations. Can I can I share a personal story? Yes. Um, I, I know we've got more to look at, but this my, my wife will remember this um, from when I was pastoring down in Baxley. Um, You know, again, the Lord used this to teach me a lot, to humble me um, and reorient how I think on these things. Um, You know, seeing any fruit where I was at was very difficult. Mm. Um, And in terms of, like, numbers, it wasn't anything spectacular by any stretch. But by God's grace, I was able to um, lead a guy to Christ who had grown up in the church I was pastoring. Uh, He had not been walking with Jesus, obviously, um, but he, he became a Christian. I think he genuinely believed. I baptized him. Only person I baptized while I was there. Um, and I would meet with him about once a week. Um, he, he had had a stroke. This is kind of what led to it. And so he like really had a hard time on the right side of his body like doing anything. Like he could, he could do some. But like he had to have a cane to get around um, and stuff like that. But he would cook me breakfast He wouldn't let me do it, he would cook me breakfast even though it was a a pretty Herculean undertaking to do so Um, and what we would do is we would read scripture, I found a a Baptist catechism, we'd go over that one thing a week like the way it had affected his mind, he couldn't remember much but we would read that out loud together and talk about it and and then you think about, you know, God's identification of what is glorious versus the world's identification, you talk about not gonna be on the front page and I'm not saying this um, I almost didn't even say this because I don't want to draw any attention to myself on this. Like I said, this humbled me. This gentleman, because of his stroke, he, he couldn't clip his own toenails. So once a week when I would go see him, I would clip his toenails and his fingernails for him. And you think, man, that, that that's not going to fill up a, um, you know, it's not going to be a bestseller. It's not going to be when you think about really making a difference for Jesus. And it was like, you know, Lord you know, in my mind, I'd, I'd, I was still working through, you know, man, I, what, what if I had a bigger platform? And it was like, this is my platform, and this is my ministry. And it's like, it was one of the neatest things, the way the Lord, it was like, like it, it was just, it was, it was humbling because I never something I thought I would do as a pastor was be cutting somebody's toenails who couldn't cut his own toenails. But it was like that, that was one way I could serve this brother. And, you know, again, I, I, th- I think and I trust God was pleased with that. But again, it's, it's not when you think of really making a difference for Jesus, the way so many people are wired, you're not thinking of that. You know, you're thinking of the, the big stadiums filled. And like you said, day Pentecost repeated and mm-hmm. multiplied. And it's like God is honored in those things just as much. And maybe more in and some And maybe ways. more, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so that, that was just, it, it was such a, a vivid example of what we're talking about to me. Because, again, I, you go into a church and think, man, God, I want to see this church grow. I want to see this church reformed. I want to see, you know, all, all that stuff and see what we have here start happening there. And, and it's like, God's like, you know, this is where I'm going to show my glory. This is where I'm going to display my greatness, is right here in that relationship. And, and it, it transformed so much of how I view ministry. And I'm so thankful for that. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. Any, just, I know, I, we, we got to move on, but just any, any, this is such an important point. Anything else about this idea of being faithful in the small things?
1: You mean Billy cutting my toenails this morning? Is that what, <laughs> is what it reminded me of? That's a, you, you know, when snag, have snagged my sock, is what I would have got. Alan does it on Fridays. But I think there is this idea where that's what comes to my mind, is the guys that have come over 18 mm-hmm. years once a week, and they have been so faithful... For so long, it's so humbling. And no one, they don't get any credit for it. There isn't something where that's ever advertised. It's just regular faithfulness. And so, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure we have things on. And I really think, please look to someone who's older, because usually older people have this. Papa and Karen have this that we can learn from, um, our, our older folks, I think, on this. They have a better grasp on this because usually I remember in Bible college, Dr. Lehman would tell us, you guys are all 23, you're coming out of here and, and you think you're gonna go and you're gonna have a great church and you're gonna, and he would way slow us down and say, God grows things. He would say it a lot more emphatically, God grows things. And I think we just have to see it like that. So that faithfulness day in and day out Ordinary faithfulness is uh, so much more important to the Lord. And we just have to trust, because it's not going to feel like anything's happening. Mm-hmm. But we have to trust that that's what the Lord is really looking for.
0: So, let's look here at verse 9, which certainly connects to all of what we've been talking about. <clears throat> so, they have a little power, yet they've kept the Word, not denied His name. Revelation 3, 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you." Now, I'm not going to re-explain what I did a few weeks ago about how the, it worked with Jewish Judaism being a legal religion and Christianity was no longer considered legal, but you can go back and look at that. But here's what we know. The, the, very likely the Jewish synagogue here, they were saying, we don't believe in this Jesus guy. He's not the Christ. He was crucified. Obviously, he's not the Messiah. What's wrong with you people? This is a false teaching. And so what do they do? They stirred up the authorities, no doubt, the Roman authorities, against the Christians. And so probably what was happening is they were, they were kicking them out of the synagogues. They were saying, get, get out of here. Like, essentially, they were locking the door, right, on the Jewish synagogue. Get out of here. We're kicking you out. Uh, we got the authority to kick you out of our synagogue. You guys are, are from Satan, essentially. And Jesus says, it's actually the opposite. If you're rejecting Jesus, you're actually acting more like your father, the devil. And the keys that you guys hold to kick out of your synagogue or to bring down authority, they're nothing compared to the keys... Of Jesus the Christ the Messiah and really Jesus is the one who's who's actually sovereign and in control here and it's these who are not truly Jews in the in the ultimate sense. Just Greg, some thoughts about this text.
2: Well, I mean, this too is steeped in the Old Testament. Like it's the, the more the, the more you the deeper you go, the the deeper you see this this goes. Uh, quickly, look, turn back to Isaiah. Uh, go first to verse uh, chapter forty-five. Going look at verse fifteen hold your place there in Revelation, go to Isaiah chapter 45. And what we see here is, is a phenomenal thing, um, a reversal, actually, of what we see in the Old Testament. Um, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 15. 14. Oh, uh, 14. Sorry. I wrote 15 down. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that helps to get the right one. He says, thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaean's men of stature shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. Now notice, these are pagan Gentiles coming to to God, to the people of God, and, and they're saying, we we want to follow your God. This is salvation, like this isn't a begrudging thing. They're acknowledging the one true God. Look again at chapter 49, verse 23. Kings shall be your foster fathers, their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Again, you've got this picture of of the nations coming to the people of God to the city of God, bowing down, acknowledging the one true God. And then probably the clearest one is Isaiah chapter 60. Look at verse 14. It says the sons, and, and this this one especially applies to Philadelphia. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet they shall call you the city of the lord the zion of the holy one of israel and so you keep in mind this is a you know looking forward to a time when the nations will come to god's people and bow down in recognition of the one true god and it seems like in some instances this is referring to salvation not just a begrudging acknowledgment but salvation. So keep that in mind. Back to Revelation chapter 4, what we read, what does Jesus say he is going to make these Jews who are opposing the Christians do? He says, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. I think that this is a clear reference to Jewish salvation in the end. Um, you know we when talk y'all talk through Romans Jerry and and we've talked about this on numerous occasions like you know there there is I think overwhelming scriptural evidence that before Jesus comes back um, there is going to be a mass conversion of Jews to Christ the the hardness, the blindness that is on the Jewish people right now will be taken away at some point in the future and Jews who in mass who have been rejecting Jesus not, you know, for whatever reason, whether through ignorance or just outright hatred, there's gonna be a turning to Jesus. Um, Jews are some of the hardest people to witness to um, because there is a partial hardening. Paul talks about has come on the Jews until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And I think this is tying into that promise that one day the Jew, Jews in mass are gonna be saved. And that, that's like, they're gonna learn that I have loved you. Meaning in this sense, it's not, it's not the Gentiles bowing before the Jews, it's the Jews coming to the Gentile church, bowing at the, the Gentile church in recognition that the seal of the one true God who they claim to worship is actually on Jesus and his people. And so this is conversion language here. They, they are coming to a point where they recognize we've been wrong, God's love is actually on you, not us. And now we want to be a part of that, which we've been rejecting.
0: That's well said. Uh, Jerry, anything on that? All right, let's look at verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, verse 10 is a huge debated verse about uh, end times issues. We're not going to get into this very much right now. We've done this in a previous thing a year and a half ago. We talked about this verse at length. Uh, I'll just say really quickly here, uh, I know that there are genuine, God-loving, Bible-believing Christians who believe this is referring to the pre-tribulation rapture. I don't think that's what this verse is talking about. Uh, I think this verse is saying not that God's going to take us out of the world before this time of trial, verse 10. Let me read it again. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, I would say the vast majority of American Christians would say this is a clear reference to the pre-tribulation rapture, that we are out of here, we're, we're gone, and then, then there's this time of it's hour of trial upon the whole earth. And I understand why they believe that. I don't, there's no spite against this, but I, I don't think that's what this is referring to. He, let me just give a quick counter-argument to that. This word's here, keep you from keep you from the hour of trial. It's this rare Greek phrase. It's tereo ek, keep you from. It's only used, that phrase tereo ek, keep you from, is only used one other time in the whole New Testament. Listen to this. It's in John 17. Jesus says, Father, I'm praying, listen, not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from tereo ek, the evil one, Satan. So it is possible to be in the world still and be kept from. At the same time, you see? And so I, I think what's, what's, what's being described here is something closer to Israel during the, the Exodus plagues. Uh, Israel was kept from all of the judgments on Egypt, not by being taken out of Egypt yet, but by being spared. God, God preserved them while all the plagues went around them on the Egyptians. And so you see that with the hail and, the, and all the different things. You can go read those as, as you, I'm sure, you are familiar. So I think this is, one more thing about this. I said I wasn't gonna say much about it, but here it is. So uh, th- 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 here's another reason I would say this. There no if if this was referring to deliverance from physical suffering in this age before Jesus comes back, it would be the only time that's ever promised in the book of Revelation, that God's going to spare us from physical suffering in this age. The New Testament always talks about enduring to the end, including death. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Many of the people here, be faithful of 10 days in jail and then be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Revelation's not about delivering us from martyrdom. It's about God keeping us from sin in the midst of martyrdom. And so it would, make, it would be strange to me if all of a sudden God's delivering us from physical suffering in this age when all of Revelation's about us enduring through physical suffering to the end. That's what, that's what the theme is. So I think here, God keeping us from evil in the midst of, of a time of testing is God keeping us from falling away from our faith in the midst of worldwide persecution and testing that is amplified at the very end right around the time of Antichrist at the end, when the beast comes that Revelation 13 talks about. So here, here's my point. Boil it down. God is not going to let you be tempted beyond your ability, but if you're a genuine Christian, you're not going to apostatize. It's not going to happen. He will keep you from the hour of trial, not by delivering you out of it, but by keeping you faithful through it. He, he's going to keep you faithful all the way to the end, no matter how bad it gets. And it's going to get bad one day. I believe when Antichrist and those kinds of things occur. And again, North Korean Christians would be like, hey, it looks like it's happening right now. I mean, this is not fun to be a Christian in a lot of parts of the world. So I think it's God's faithfulness in the midst.
2: Of, I know we're running low on time because we lingered, but Greg, thoughts on that? Well, also, too, uh, Bill brought this out, and I thought it was, it was a good point. Um, he talks about the hour of trial. You know, time references in Revelation are, are important. You know, you've got three and a half days, you know, 42 months. Was it 1,200, 40, 1,260 days uh, and stuff like that. What's interesting here is it's only an hour. And one of the things, and again we, we've developed this in other points so I'm not gonna belabor all that now, but it does seem like towards the end when the Antichrist appears, it's going, all the persecution, all the everything is going to ratchet up significantly and it is going to be worldwide, and worldwide it's going to be intense. I mean, you know, talks about he will wage war against the saints, he will wear them down, he will conquer them, at least physically, he will conquer them and it's going to be intense but it's only for a short time. God shortens that last intense period on purpose. Jesus references this in Matthew 24 when he says, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Meaning God knows the limits of his people. He knows how much his church can endure. He knows, you know, that point where it would be too much. And that's why he's like, look, yes, it's going to be bad, but that really bad time is going to be short. And praise God for that. Uh, praise God that it will be short.
0: It, it's a, a much simpler way. is just he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion yes, until the day of Christ Jesus. Absolutely. God is not going to lose a single sheep, nope. no matter how difficult it gets in this life. And even if we don't live to the very last, time of, of Antichrist and the beast and all that. If we, if we die centuries before that happens, we could die 5,000 years before that happens. Who knows when that's going to happen? If we die, still, are we going to have difficulties to walk through? Yes, through many tribulations, every Christian will enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus... Will be persecuted. It's a fact. It's part of being a Christian. So God says, "I'm not going to allow this hour of testing, or whatever hour of testing we go through, to ultimately make us reject our faith." Those who know Christ will know Him and be faithful to Him to the end. And that's a tremendously encouraging uh, aspect to this. For the sake of time, let's let's mm. just do the last verses, and then Jerry, I want to hear your thoughts here. Uh, mm. Verse 12. Let me start in verse 11. I am coming soon. I think this is his final coming, being referred to. Hold fast what you have, so that you may so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just a word here, and then Jerry, I wanna hear from you. Um, This weak little church, this church that looks like nothing, Jesus says, you guys are going to become pillars in my eternal temple. Not a literal temple. There's no literal temple in the New Jerusalem, right? There's no temple. Right. It's a, it's the whole thing is a giant holy of holies. So What he's saying is, you're going to become forever part of the reality of eternity in heaven. You're going to be in God's presence forever. Jerry,
1: thoughts about this? The young said five times, mine. It's, he, we're his. And uh, I think that's destroying to think about.
0: All right, guys, I think for the sake of time, we've got to yes. wrap it up. Greg, can you close us in prayer and yeah, then we will be, sing be together? I'd be happy
2: to. Father, we are so thankful for, for this text that we've been able to look at, Lord. Um, and I pray, God, that we would all be humble before you, humble before one another, and realize that all our strength comes from you, Lord, and that uh, weakness uh, understood rightly is not a bad thing. It's actually, it positions us to, to be used even more of you in ways we would never plan. Um, and in arenas that we would never have sought out. Um, and so, God, I pray that you would help us humbly submit to, to who you've made us to be, the circumstances that you bring around, bring upon us, Lord. Help us trust, God, that, um, Lord, you have a purpose and a good plan for us, uh, however we are, whatever we struggle with. Um, God, that, that you want to show your strength in that. And I pray, Lord, that we would be focused on what glorifies you, not what brings the attention of the world, um, not what sounds good or looks good on paper, but God, what actually glorifies and honors you, which, as we've said, may not be on the front page of the newspaper, but it is recorded in heaven, and that's more important. So, Lord, help us as we discuss these things uh, in groups. uh, Just help us encourage and admonish one another, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.